You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you for that great special, and uh, I, I appreciate the thought. I all of our problems, uh, he can solve them, and he is the only one that has those answers. I'm also thankful that, and I know what the song is saying, I'm also thankful, though, that we, we only have the option to get to Jesus because he came to us. I mean, just the fact, the fact he came close enough, and all we have to do is decide to go, and we can. And so it's not about us working our way to get there. He makes himself available. We just have to make the decision, and I'm so thankful for that. We'll Maybe even look a little bit at that this morning. As we wind down our series in 1 John, I, I considered just kind of wrapping it up actually this week and finishing with the remaining verses in this chapter. The, the climax of the, ver, of the book is, is verse 13 where it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And and that is the climax. It's kind of the point that John was trying to get to. I'm, I'm writing these things so that you know that you have eternal life and that you have Jesus Christ. And the remaining verses, as I read through them or have been reading through them the last couple of weeks, almost seem like a little bit of an epilogue. You know what I mean by epilogue? I mean, just kind of closing thoughts to kind of round everything out. And almost as if John is trying to maybe loose, tie up some loose ends and finish out some thoughts he didn't get to earlier. And, and I'm not discounting what John is writing to close the letter at all. That's not my point today. I was just having a, a tough time connecting it with the whole overall point. And he, you know, he spent so much time, just as a quick review, trying to drive home the thought that there should be a resemblance if you're part of the family. There should be evidence that you and I are part of the family. People should look at us and see a family resemblance between us and our father. And John lays out trade after trade that if the family, uh, that if if you are wondering if someone's part of the family, um, that they can look at these traits and know for sure that if if I'm part of the family, here are the traits I need to look for. If there's someone else that, that I'm wondering about, here are the traits to look for for them. There were false teachers in that day, and they were called Gnostics, and they were denying that Christ came in the flesh. They were denying his deity, and, and so John is helping the readers to filter through those voices by teaching them to look for evidence, and I think that's a good approach because we, we don't want to get to the place, in, especially in this culture, where we're trying to discern truth, and, and our discerning or our filtering for, the, for that is, well, I feel like, well, I feel like this, or I feel like that. I mean, everyone's using that phrase, but I'm thankful that John gave the readers something more tangible to stand on. No, he said, here's the evidence. If you want to know if someone's part of the family, here's how you know. If they say Jesus is not God, they're not part of the family. If they, if they don't display love for the brethren, they're not part of the family. If they live a life and they continue in sin, then you have to start wondering if they're part of the family or not. And the, so the climax of the family trait concept comes in verse 13 where John says the ultimate characteristic of a member of God's family hinges on what they believe about Jesus Christ. It all comes down, folks, today. 
It all comes down to what you believe about Jesus Christ. If you do not believe that He's the Son of God, and you do not believe that He's the Savior of the world, then the Bible says that you do not have eternal life. Plain and simple. And I'm not trying to be mean about it. I'm simply trying to get you to see in a passionate way, in an urgent way, that you must believe what is true about Christ if you want to spend eternity in heaven with God the Father someday. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And then John closes it out with some fairly, to me, what seemed like random thoughts that point back to some things he's already dealt with. Last week we focused on prayer and how our knowledge of what God is capable of doing should give us confidence to pray. If if I have eternal life, that should give me confidence to know that that I can pray to God. If, If I have a God who hears my prayers... That gives me confidence that I can pray. If I have a God who not only hears my prayers, but can answer my prayers, that gives me confidence that I can pray. If also then I have a God who can reach a heart that is in sin, he can reach down and touch a heart that no one else has access to, that gives me confidence when I pray. That was the point of last week's message, is that we can pray with confidence because think about what God has done. Look, at, look around and see all the things that God has done and that you not only have a God that wants to answer and can answer, but you have full access to that God. Wow. I mean, this is evidence that you're part of the family if you pray believing that God can and will do something about it. And we ended in verses 16 and 17 last time, and, and I mentioned that these are some of the toughest verses to interpret in the Bible. There are as many opinions about what these verses mean as there are commentators out there talking about it. Everybody has a different take, and and I mentioned their different takes last week, or what the the primary different opinions are, and and I thought, well, that's all I need to deal with. Sometimes I'm learning as a pastor, you come to these texts, you come to these verses, and you're thinking, okay, I'm just going to kind of talk about it once, and then we'll move on, and I won't have to deal with it again, but... But the Lord led me back to these verses again today, and, and I may be a glutton for punishment, but, but I, I really do think that God was having me look at these verses again because there's an important truth here that we need. In reading these verses, I, I saw a truth I couldn't skip. See, John gives us a wonderful reminder of the kind of God we serve, and we serve a great and mighty and powerful God. I cannot emphasize that enough today. We serve a God that can do everything. He can do anything. He can reach even the hardest heart. And if there's someone in here today with a problem, like we heard, if you have a problem that you don't know how to solve, you have a God that can solve your problem. And I'm so thankful for that truth today that we heard it leads so well into the message this morning. He's a God, you know, you start to look at all the things he can do. And what I have started to understand, and I've known this my whole life, but one of the things that I'm getting out of this is that we serve a God of unexpected and pleasant surprises. Meaning, sometimes, you know, we try to put God in this box. And we think, well, this is how God works. This is how he operates. This is what he said. And he's just, this is how he is. This is how he's going to do it. And, and this is the box that God is in. But God is a God of surprises sometimes. He's a God of unexpected surprises. We can plan and we can assume and project, but we have a Father whose thoughts are not our thoughts. We have a Father whose ways are so much higher than our ways. We need to be careful of limiting Him. 
Now, uh, what I will say this morning, I want to be careful, is that Eastside Baptist Church, everything we believe and teach is found right here in God's word. And so what I do want to say is that God does not limit himself um, to anything except what his word says. In other words, there's a lot of people out there in this day and age that say, well, God works in all these different ways. And, but listen, God will not work in a way that is opposed to his book. This is the, this is the only limitation is that God, that God puts on himself is what he says, what he reveals about himself through his word. But even at that, God is eternally and all-powerful, omniscient. He is, he is omnipresent. Anything that you can think of, God can do. And sometimes we limit God by thinking, well, he's not going to do that. No, life is full of unexpected surprises. You've been surprised before. Some of you, when you get surprised, some of you men, I, you jump and scream like a little girl. I love watching videos of guys get scared that are big and tough and somebody surprises them and they're just jumpy. They kind of squeal a little bit. It's fun. You know, I don't necessarily like to be surprised, but I'm not jumpy, but I have those in my household that are. And as a dad, you capitalize on that. Life is full of unexpected surprises. You know, surprises can be good or bad. I mean, in my in my estimation, um, sometimes you go through seasons where you get more bad surprises than good surprises. A lot of times you, you get more bills in the mail than you do unexpected checks. At least that's been my experience. But sometimes you do get an unexpected surprise that turns out to be wonderful. And I'm just thinking about our family. Can I be honest with you? A few years ago, I would have been, I would have been surprised to tell you that God would move us to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. About six months ago, for those of you who don't know us well or haven't been here long, about six months ago, God moved our family from Stillwater, Oklahoma, where we, I had been for almost 19 years. We, we, our family was raised there. All of our kids were born there. God moved us to Sioux Falls in the last six months or so, and, and it was an unexpected surprise for sure. Not something that I was pursuing or looking for, um, but Brother Phil Spencer, Pastor Phil Spencer, is a very determined individual. And he called me once, and I said, I don't think so. Call me again. I'm not sure. I don't think so. He called one more time, and I, for some reason, the green light was there. It's been an unexpected surprise, but can I tell you, it's been a good surprise. It's been a wonderful experience for our family, and I, I, I mean, I know there are things that are different. I understand all that, but can I just tell you this? As it relates to our church family, there's been, it's been nothing but wonderful surprises. And, so, and many times along the way, uh, they're, they're, it's not just about people. There are things that God sends into your life at the right time. And unexpectedly, he gives you something that you just needed right then. I mean, just this week, can I just tell you, the Sioux Falls weather has been an unexpected surprise. <laughs> we got more snow Thursday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday than we did the last two winters in Stillwater, Oklahoma, combined. <laughs> We were planning like Snowmageddon is coming. We were stockpiling. We were like, this is going to be bad. They say we could get about an inch of snow. I mean, I'm just kind of relating here. I mean, I just want you to know our, how we were thinking about it. So, but one thing that God did through all of this, besides the unexpected surprise, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, of course, was that... In our home, the one that we bought here, there's a stove, a, a, a wood, I thought it was a wood stove at first, it's actually a pellet stove. 
I'd never had a pellet stove before, but, but in Stillwater, we had a wood-burning stove. We installed it there in the living room, and, and I'm telling you, it became our family's gathering spot. You know, and it's not like the winters in Oklahoma are like the winters in Sioux Falls, but it gets cold enough that we basically would burn that stove all winter long. So we started, uh, I looked at the stove, tried to figure out this pellet stove here and thought, well, it's going to be cold. I, I want to get this thing fired up and see if it works. And after a little bit of fiddling with it, I figured out how to do it. We put some pellets in there and started it burning. And I'm telling you, the flame kicked up, the heat immediately started coming. And I'm just telling you this from, from somebody who God did something unexpected for this week, is that sometimes you need something familiar like that to remind you that God is the same God. And he may bring you someplace completely different that you weren't expecting, but he's the same God. And he does things for us that at times are unexpected, but I'm telling you, they're good and they're helpful. And we, we sat there and we watched the flames and and we realize that we don't have to stock this thing with wood like we did that wood stove as much. It's not as much work. It may be more expensive for the pellets, but I put a bunch in it. And the next night, morning I got up, it was still burning hot. And I didn't have to wake up in the middle of the night to stock it. I was like, thank you, Lord. For so many reasons, more than just that he blesses us, but he often gives us things we don't even expect because he wants us to know he loves us. He's our Father. He's a God of unexpected surprises. And I'm thankful, and I'm sorry to get emotional about it, but I'm just thankful that I serve a God who's not limited by my small scope. He's not limited by the way that I think about things. The unexpected blessings remind me of a character trait that I think is found in these verses. And I will connect it here in just a moment, but as we go through, I want to follow the thought flow with John here so that we can understand how he gets to where he goes The first thing in verse 16 that I see is that we should pray for each other. We should pray for each other. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin. And members of the family have a responsibility to each other. Do you realize that? See, a lot of that, that's the problem in our culture is that people think that church is a, they, they look at it like it's consuming media. They walk in here thinking, well, church is about me getting fed and me getting what I need, then I go out. But when I see what John writes here in verse 16, I realize it's not just about what you get out of it. We have a responsibility to each other. He says, if any man see his brother's sin as sin, one of the natural functions of a family is to look out for each other. To have each other's back. I I remember as a kid, I had a sister and she was 14 months older than I was and and uh, we grew up, and honestly, we had a lot, of, a lot of this going on. She's a strong-willed person, and, and I was always right. And <laughs> so we would go at it sometimes. But I'm telling you, if anybody from the outside ever came in and said something to my sister, I mean, I was all over that because that's my sister. And that's the part of the family function that I think a lot of people are missing when it comes to church today. Not that we're just jumping in fighting for each other, but that a church should function like a family. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the ho- of the household of God. So he was telling the church at Ephesus, as a local church, you're our family. You have a family relationship there in Ephesus. Every child of God's part of God's family, but that family relationship, and I want you to listen to this this morning 
There's a lot of people here who are not, this morning, who aren't plugged into a local New Testament church, but the family relationship is lived out through the function of a local New Testament church. You don't think you need it, but you do need it. The importance of a local church has been diminished to the point that many see no reason to be a, a, a vital part of one or to be included in one. Or, uh, but listen, God's plan for his kingdom purposes is accomplished through the local New Testament church. Don't diminish its importance. And by that, I mean an organized assembly of believers that gather around the truth of God's word, preach it and teach it, and then go out and reach other people. That's a local New Testament church. And if you have bypassed a role in a local church like this one, it's almost like you're waving off God's plan for your life. God says, here's my plan for you. It's not just that you're saved and you read your Bible and that's all you need. No, I established this institution on earth called the local church, the New Testament church, and you got for God to work in your life like he wants to work in your life. You've got to be a plugged in, tuned in, active serving member of a local church like Eastside Baptist Church. And I'm not saying that Eastside Baptist Church is God's answer for everyone. I mean, I, in my biased opinion, I think it is. But I'm being realistic here. God may have a different place for you, but you need a local church. And in this day and age, in our culture with our technology, and it, our technology, it, everyone says it's bringing everyone together. But in my opinion, the local church has been that which has suffered because of technology. There are a lot of people out there and a lot of churches out there that even just stream services and, and say, we can be a church, but you're over there and you're over there and you stay home for the week. But what that does is that relegates church to a, a media consumption. It says that your involvement in church is this, that you, whatever you take in and you're fed, that's all you need. But no, if you look at 1 John chapter 5, then you see that he says, if you see a brother that is in sin... You know what that shows is that there's a responsibility to each other. You can't see that if you, all you do is ever watch church from a screen. The only way that you can be aware enough of what's going on in your brother's and sister's life is if you're plugged in together. You've got to gather together. You have to meet together. And when you come together, you have to be observant. That's part of the responsibility that we have and I'm not trying to bash, bash anybody over the head with this truth this morning. I'm giving you what's something that God, Jesus Christ, he loved the church enough to die for it. And we're going to say, well, I don't need that. I'm going to wave off that plan for God's life, for, for my life from God and do this on my own. No, you need this. You can't see something unless you're together. You can't see something unless you're paying attention and there are a lot of people, I believe, who aren't plugged into a local church and their life is wrecked by sin because they haven't put themselves in a position to be seen by somebody else and be helped by the prayers of another believer. They isolate themselves and no wonder that they're bound by sin. You know, this all, you can't see something unless you're paying attention. This implies personal involvement. It fits under the category of Hebrews 10, 25, where it's written, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. We don't need less assembly. We need more assembly. Even churches that are thinking they're connecting through technology are putting people at distance by saying, well, you know, you can do it from there or do it from there. No, we need this. 
According to verse 16, your role as a member of the family is to observe and to encourage. And you cannot do that if you simply consume a service like you watch Netflix. See, part of the strengthening process comes through being together. You have to be around people to see when they're struggling. And listen, my, my folks live in Oklahoma. We're getting used to being further away from them. My wife's family um, lives 1,700 miles away in American Canyon, California. When we were in, in Oklahoma, they were 1,700 miles away from us there. We moved to Sioux Falls thinking, well, maybe this will be closer. 1,700 miles, exactly. One of the first things her mom looked up. But you know, we can FaceTime them, which is great. I love technology in that way. We can FaceTime them. We can talk to them on the phone. We can send text messages. But there's, there's nothing like them being here for a few days in the face-to-face interaction. And I'm telling you, the local church is suffering at the hands of technology. Because we're, it's not connect, I mean, we're connected, but it's not the same. You don't get somebody's countenance when you're talking on the phone. And even on FaceTime, everyone's look, making sure duck lips are good, but they're not really getting, you're not really getting the true, the true sense of, who they, of what they're thinking and where they are in their countenance. You're not really getting that. We need it. We need the face-to-face interaction. Don't let technology come between us or anything else. You need a local church family because there are times when we're suffering and we're, we're struggling and we're maybe even in sin and we think we're doing good. But the fact that we're not around somebody else for them to see and discern that we need something means that we'll stay where we are. Why should we pray for each other? Well, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. And what that means is, we'll, we'll get more into what John means by sin not unto death in a moment, but for now I want to focus on the fact that we should pray for each other because God wants to see that brother or sister in sin restored. He wants them to be right with him. Our first step when we see a brother in sin, listen, our first step when we see somebody in sin or we know they're struggling, is to take them before God. God is the only one, like we heard this morning, who can solve all of our problems. It says in 16, he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. God wants to do something about the soul that is in sin. He can do things that are impossible for us to do. He can access the heart. We should pray for each other because God can reach a heart. We can't see that if we're not connected. But even more basic than that, we should pray for each other. What I see here, we should pray for each other because sin has consequences. Yes, God can reach a heart, but God has to reach that heart because sin has consequences. See, more specifically, sin brings death. I know that's not popular. I know talking about sin isn't popular. I know talking about death isn't popular. But God told Adam and Eve in the very first couple chapters of the Bible that if they disobey his command, it would lead to their death. Ezekiel wrote twice in chapter 18, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6, Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. And I only bring it up because the Bible talks about it right here. He's talking about sin unto death, sin not unto death. And let me just tell you, if you sin, the results of sin are death. God is holy and we are not. God is just and perfect. He can't simply sweep our sin under the rug and ignore our sin. He cannot just look the other way. I mean, if a criminal commits a serious offense, what would we think of a judge who simply dismissed the offense because he liked the guy? 
I mean, none of us would think, well, that's a judge that should be residing over a court. No, how much more then should we expect God to be just? Justice must be done when his standard of righteousness is broken. The consequence is death. And it's not just physical death, folks. It's separation from God for eternity. God is so holy that sin cannot be in his presence. So we as sinners, we cannot expect to spend eternity with God in heaven because he's holy. He's perfect. He's sinless. Our sin would corrupt the whole place. When Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, it doesn't just mean our physical life ends. That word is about separation. When a sinner dies, they don't have the option of heaven because God is holy, that's where he dwells. The only option a sinner has when a sinner dies on their own is to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. In Luke 16, we heard a message on it a few Sunday nights ago about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man died and found himself in hell. And as the preacher that night preached, he said, this is not a parable. These people have names. They're literally people right now, sinners who have died, and they are spending eternity in hell. Sin has very real consequences, the worst of which is death, eternal separation from God. And again, I know that's not popular, but as a, as a Bible-preaching church, we have a responsibility to teach everything that God talks about in His Word. And that's what He talks about. Sin has very real consequences, and death is the worst, eternal separation from God. But John, though, as I was reading this, that's not what was standing out to me. John mentions two types of sin. There are those sins that are unto death, and those sins that are not unto death. Unto death simply means that which results in death. So John is saying that sin has definite consequences. None of them are desirable, especially death. But there is a difference between sin not unto death and sin unto death. So there's a sin that results in death. And as I mentioned last week, I can't define it for sure because John doesn't give a picture. He doesn't say here's exactly what it looks like. It could mean physical death. And it it, it could mean that when someone commits this sin before God, that they physically die. And we know that there are cases in the Bible that people, when they would commit a sin, it was so grievous and egregious to God that he immediately took their life. I, I think in the book of Acts about Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Ghost. And because they lied there, the Bible says there in Acts that God took them. He took their lives. Now, that could be what John is talking about. We don't know. That would be, there would be speculation because he doesn't say. It could mean physical death. It could also mean spiritual death. Meaning that there is a sin unto death that if you commit this sin that you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And just the fact that he's talked about the Gnostics those that don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, or those that don't believe that Christ came in the flesh, then maybe we could assume that's what he's talking about. He could be saying the sin unto death are those that sin the sin of not receiving Jesus Christ and not believing who he is, and therefore not spending eternity in heaven with God. That could also be what it means. But the point, that's not the point or the focus. If it was the focus, John would have defined it for us. See, the point that we've got to remember is this. When we sin, it injures our relationship with God. 
Let me say that again. When we sin, it injures our relationship with God. It cuts us off from fellowship with God. It it breaks our connection. It breaks our fellowship. Sin is serious business to God. Verse 17, he says, all unrighteousness is sin. If it doesn't fit with God's standard of what is right, it is sin. All sin separates us from a relationship with God. That's the point that we need to take away here. When the Bible says the consequence of sin is death... That is as sure as the law of gravity. If you were to stand on the top of this building and say, I'm going to jump off, but this time I think it's going to be the exception, then you are sorely mistaken. Because there's a law called the law of gravity that always kicks in. It's certain. It's a natural law. Well, the way that I look at sin and death is just as sure. If someone sins, death results. Sin leads to death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve, if you sin, it will result in your death. It's natural. It's a consequence. It's something God has very, very securely set into into, uh, motion. But with that being the case, you would assume nothing with God is immutable. You say, well, if a person sins, they die. And I would say to you today, God is immutable. He doesn't change. His word is sure. The requirement is always death. But at that point, we could say, well, that's the end of the conversation. But here's where we start to see the surprises. Here's where we see that unexpected surprise that God is operating in a way that we may not have expected. See, there's a sin that's unto death. But there's also a sin not unto death. And that seems like a strange thing to write, considering how our understanding of our consequence of sin is. I mean, it seems kind of strange that there would be included in this, after all this, there's a sin unto death, sin has consequences, death is the consequence. The fact that John could write that there's a sin not unto death, that's a little maybe perplexing. But you know, it's been pretty clear. I mean, unrighteousness is sin. Sin results in death. But here's the twist. Here's the unexpected surprise. The fact that God says certain sins are not unto death means that there are exceptions, right? I mean, it could mean that what I, maybe some people would say, well, that means that God has loosened his expectations. That means that there are some sins that God will just overlook then. I mean, right? Is that, you think that's what that means? Well, I would say that's not likely. I mean, he's unchanging and he's immutable. He's also still righteous. He's also still just. So I doubt that he's adjusted the law that sin leads to death. I doubt he's changed his mind. No, God still requires death for sin. But here's the twist. Here's the pleasant surprise. It turns out that he will accept a death by a sinless sacrifice. That's the surprise. That's the twist. See, even though we're the guilty ones, from the time before Adam and Eve first sinned, listen, God already had a plan for someone else to die for sin. We read it this morning in 1 Peter. From before the foundation of the world, there was a a plan. The lamb was to be slain slain, and he died in our place. God's plan since before the foundation of the world was not that he would say, okay, sinners, you no longer have to die, but that he would provide the sacrifice for those sinners who were the guilty ones. That plan meant sending his own son to die in our place. 
Back in chapter 2, John wrote that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. That simply means a satisfactory payment. It's been paid in full. It means that which satisfies God's justice and wrath toward our sin. Jesus Christ died in our place. Listen, and I want you to get this message. We probably have some folks in here who don't know if they stand redeemed. And let me just say this. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in your place. My sin and your sin both should have placed us on the cross. We deserve to die, but instead God sent Jesus Christ to take your place and he placed the penalty of our sin upon his own son. It had to be, listen, it had to be a sinless sacrifice and Jesus was qualified. See, every sinner must die for their own sins. But because Jesus Christ never sinned, he could die for my sins. And he could die for your sins. That's how much God loves you. He didn't leave you to suffer on your own. He must deal with sin, and he did. He's full of wrath towards sin because he's holy. It doesn't mean he hates us. He has wrath toward our sin because he's holy. But instead of leaving us with only one option, well, death, he sent his son to die and become the object of his wrath and the just payment for our sin. Jesus Christ bore the penalty that we deserved, that you deserved. Death was still the consequence of sin, only it wasn't our death. It was Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb on the cross. Listen, if you've received Christ as your Savior and accepted that payment for your sin, you don't have to die. He already did. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 16, a passage we already looked at earlier, he says, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Listen, I want you to get this. This is where the sin not unto death comes into focus here. John doesn't give specifics, but we know more about the sin not unto death than we do the sin unto death. See, the sin unto death is purely speculative. Speculative, we don't know for sure what it means, but the sin not unto death isn't as unclear. The sin not unto death is the sin committed by a child of God. Because a child of God can commit a sin. But if he's been saved, that sin's already been paid for. That's the sin, not unto death. And I know that's not specific, but I'm just telling you, any sin that a child of God commits is the sin not unto death. Because Christ paid for it already. And even though sin breaks fellowship with God, the child of God can no longer sin in such a way that their eternity is in question. The worst that sin could do to the child of God is break fellowship and affect their rewards. And you say, well, you Baptists, you believe in eternal security. And, and you know, you say, well, we're eternally saved and bless God, we can go live however we want. No, no, no. That's not it at all, actually. You see... Breaking fellowship with God is a big deal. It's a big enough deal that as a child of God who has been saved and believes in eternal security, the fact that Jesus Christ paid for all my sins all at once makes me want to serve him like I've never served anything else. 
Not only that, that my sin breaks fellowship, it also will affect my rewards. I don't want to stand before God someday having lived life like I wanted to and have him look at me and say, well, where, where are the results? Where are the works for me? It's all wood, hay, and stubble. And yes, you can go in, but you're just saved as by fire. As Brother Gabe called it yesterday, just fire insurance. A lot of people in this day and age, they think, well, I've been saved, and I don't have to die for my sin, so I'm going to live it up. No, that's the wrong attitude. If you have somebody that paid off your debt so that you wouldn't die, you should be more committed to that than someone who thinks, well, God only forgives a few of my sins at a time. It should raise our level of commitment. So it's not that eternal security makes us complacent. No, no, not at all. It, it causes us to be even more committed. That's motivation. But one thing is clear here. It's now possible to sin a sin that's not unto death. Because our Father sent the Son to die in our place. We deserve sin unto death, but instead we've been shown mercy. That's the unexpected twist. That's the word that has been playing in my mind as I read this. The fact that there's the phrase, the sin not unto death, just stands out to me so much because it means that God has mercy on us. See, so many read the Bible and they see these verses and they get all upset because all they can see is God's judgment. Well, you know, here there's a sin unto death, watch out, and there's a sin not unto death and he's still going to be in trouble and And God is just so judgmental, and it's all about judgment and judgment. Everything's a sin. All unrighteousness is a sin. Unto death, not unto death. If a brother's involved in the sin, you better pray because he's in trouble. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Judgment for sin was set up by God at the beginning. Like the law of gravity. I'm not going to deny that. Sin leads to death. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. It's the only option to say, well, no sin near God because of his nature. So judgment seems like the only option. And if you read the Bible thinking judgment, that is all you're going to see. And people only focus on a God of judgment, but they refuse to see what's really there. Because to only see judgment is to miss an eternity altering truth about God in verse 17 when he says all unrighteousness and sin, and there is a sin not unto death. See, that phrase right there shows us God is not just about judgment. The first phrase is about judgment. But the fact that John could write, but there is a sin, not unto death, means that God is not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of tremendous mercy. It shouldn't be allowed for that phrase to be written. There's not a sin unto death, or sin not unto death. That shouldn't be allowed. It seems like that wouldn't even be allowed to be written. But because God is a God of mercy and he sent his son to die in our place, it means that God has extended something to us that is a completely unexpected surprise to us. That it's even possible for us to sin and not die for it ourselves. Well, you talk about mercy. The mercy pouring out of verse 17 should cause us, listen, it should cause us to get on our knees and say, God, thank you for the mercy that you have shown me when all I deserved was judgment. Father, thank you for sending your son to die on a cross in my place. 
It was my death that was deserved. I should have been hanging there, but he died in my place. I have lied. I have disobeyed. I have done wrong. I have done all of these things in my life. I've put other things above you. I've stolen things that didn't belong to me. And yet your son died for each of those sins when I should have been there. That it's possible to sin against the holy God and not die because of it is the single greatest example of mercy than you and I will ever experience. That I could sin and God not immediately cast me into hell shows just how merciful of a God that we serve. A God of unexpected surprises. Because He could have held us, each of us, to our sin. But instead, he sent his son. He could have said, no exceptions. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. No exception. But he sent his son. See, we read the phrase, there's a sin not unto death like it's no big deal. But there's no bigger deal than God's mercy. That he wouldn't give us what we deserve. That's amazing. That he would give his own son what we deserve. It's mind-blowing. I know this is not in my notes, but I noticed this as we were looking in our hymnals. Open your hymnal and turn to page 9. I've been thinking about mercy a lot this morning. You know, there's plenty of times in my kids' lives when they'll do something that they shouldn't have done and and, and I and just feel led by the Lord to teach them about mercy in that moment. You deserve this, but I'm not going to give that to you because I'm going to show you mercy because God shows us mercy. Look at page 9 in your hymnal. Here's some verses about mercy that I noticed just as I was turning to come thou fount this morning. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. For His merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same. The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Why? For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. Why? For his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his mercy endureth forever. Listen, the only reason that we have the option of committing a sin that doesn't kill us is because of God's mercy. The only reason that I can sin a sin that
that's not unto death is because God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross in mercy. That's the only reason that we can even write a phrase, there's a sin not unto death. Death is certain. We should have just assumed that sinners die, but in this case, a righteous man did. So my question's closing here today is when's the last time you simply stopped and said, Father, thank you for not giving me what I deserved. Hell, separation from God forever, that should have been my lot. But you poured your wrath on your son instead and showed me mercy. Second, how are you at showing mercy to others? Because Luke 6 says, Be ye therefore merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And this whole thought process starts by seeing somebody in sin and saying they need some prayer. See, a lot of times when we're doing well and we're right with the Lord, we see somebody else in sin and we cast them aside. And we say, we're complacent. We're like, well, it's not my life. They can do what they want. Or, yeah, figures, they're just right back where they were. They always go back to that. And we don't care enough about them to show them mercy. And yet, in our greatest time of need, God showed mercy to us. The reason that you see a brother in sin and you start to pray for him is because God has showed you mercy. And maybe it's time for somebody in this room this morning that knows somebody else is struggling to stop being so self-focused and get on your knees and be merciful to your brother or sister that has a need. So how are you doing, not just at receiving and being thankful for God's mercy, how are you at showing others mercy? Third, are you taking advantage of God's mercy? Meaning, you know you're saved, you know that God has forgiven you, and you can sin not unto death, and, you're, and you are sinning not unto death. And you're taking full advantage of a merciful God. You're living how you want. Even when Romans 6 says, shall, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid that we should treat his undeserved mercy that way. And yet many do. Maybe even in this room. And you know that you're not living in a way that God would be pleased with but you say, well, there's sin not unto death, and so I can just do this, and it's fine. No, you are, you're risking reward in heaven and a fel- in fellowship with God. And it's time to stop taking his mercy for granted and come confess your sin and find his mercy again. Fourth, maybe you know of a brother or sister, they're not, and they're, they're sinning not unto death. You need to stop being complaining about them or talking about them to others and take it to God. Pray for them. Lift them up. That's our responsibility as a family. Fifth, I imagine in this room there are those that have never received Christ's payment for your sins. And you know right now that every sin you commit is a sin unto death. Every time you lie, it's a sin unto death. Every time you take something that doesn't belong to you, it's a sin unto death. Every time that you use, use God's name in vain, it's a sin unto death. Every time that, that you men look at a woman to lust after her, it's a sin unto death. You know that every single sin that you're committing in your life right now is sin unto death because you have not accepted Christ's payment for your sins. 
Listen, you can receive Christ's payment for your sin. And I'm not saying this morning that you can go out and just sin however much you want. No, it'll change your life. And you won't want to sin because then you realize the love of God. And you're like, if a God loves me like that, I don't want to hurt him. I want to serve him. If there's anybody in here today that doesn't know of the mercy and you haven't been saved, if you were to die today, you will spend eternity separated from the Father in a place called hell. Friend, if you were to die today, your opportunities for mercy end. So I'm going to ask you to take advantage of his mercy this morning while you have an opportunity. Receive his mercy. It doesn't cost you anything except humility. To come and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin has as a consequence my death. In this case, eternal separation from you. But I know that your son died on the cross in my place. And I receive his payment for my sins this morning so that I can spend eternity in heaven with you. If you believe it, that's how simple it is. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.